Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with RCD contributor John Waters. Today we are speaking with Miles Lagozzi, the documentary filmmaker behind Combat Obscura, a gripping depiction of the war in Afghanistan in 2011 and 2012 during his time as an 18-year-old combat camera with the 1st Battalion, 6 Marines. Most recently, he's the author of a new book about his experiences in Afghanistan and returning home. It's called Whistles from the Graveyard, My Time Behind the Camera on War, Rage, and Restless Youth in Afghanistan. Miles, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the book, I just want to acknowledge we're recording this just past the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. John Waters, what's going through your mind at this time of year? How long it's been since September 11th happened and how much of an effect it had on certain people of a generation, probably just Your too life. young to serve. <laughs> My life, Miles's life. Miles's life, absolutely. Uh, and all of the images that we grew up with in high school, the things we saw on television every night, particularly in Iraq, watching it with my parents, thinking about it at school, asking teachers about it, what it meant. Uh, Miles, you began as a filmmaker uh, in your creative life post-Marine Corps. Uh, what were those years post 9-11 like for you? So my uh, my grandma actually lived uh, a few blocks away from the, the, the towers. So her windows got blown out and uh, they, uh, she, they had to rescue her cats. And uh, it was just a total, it was like total chaos. But I, but I do remember there being um, a sort of sense of uh, camaraderie. A lot of, a lot of drinking. A lot of people in bars uh, drinking <laughs> and um, connecting in a way that they hadn't connected before. You know, it really, it, it, as traumatic as it was, it, uh, it brought the city together in a weird way. And yeah, it was kind of cool. I mean, you joined up a bit later. But I mean, was that spirit still lingering or how did that shape into your your decision to, to um, sign up? No, I, I, I think by by uh, the time I enlisted by 2008, um, 9-11 wasn't as much of like the sole reason kids were going in, you know, uh, I, I think after a certain point, because the war had gone on so long, a lot of kids were joining because they wanted to be a part of history. They wanted to uh, um, get some combat experience, you know, get some trigger time. And, and, and it didn't really, once, you know, once we realized that it wasn't really Afghanistan that caused 9-11, it was a few you know, hundred, maybe a thousand guys lived that happened to be living in Afghanistan. Uh, it started to the, the the excuse to go because of nine eleven started to make less sense. Especially, I mean, obviously in Iraq, you know, just like me and John, me and uh, John were talking about it while we were out in Afghanistan. They murked Bin Laden, like they they killed Bin Laden. And we were all kind of like, so do do we get to go home now? Like, is it over? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it didn't have anything to do with uh, uh, nation building. Like, you know, 12 guys that flew uh, airplanes into the World Trade Center 
really had no connection to Afghanistan. There were Saudis, they were, you know, Pakistanis, yeah. Didn't we, have, John, do you remember there was a, was there a formation called, I think, where they were basically like, hey, uh, yeah, we got Bin Laden. Because we don't, we didn't get news out there. We had no real connection to the outside world. But I just remember there being, it was late at night and they formed us all together and told us. And, and then everyone just thinking, okay, so, you know, what next? What are we doing now? Why are we still here? Uh, a general officer who I was serving with who, who said, hey, great job on that JPEL package for Objective Geronimo. And then he sort of breezed by me and moved on with his day. I think that was pretty symbolic. Maybe it just happened. Uh, everybody sort of cheered, looked around, thought, what does this mean? Does this mean it's over? And then went back to the thing they were doing before is my recollection. But the book uh, that we're here to talk about, Whistles from the Graveyard, My Time Behind the Camera on War, Rage, and Restless Youth in Afghanistan. I don't know if it, it takes like a decade before people start saying uncomfortable things or weird things or interesting things about the military, about the war, about themselves. Uh, but this book does it. And I enjoyed it from cover to cover. I think Miles is one of the uh, the biggest, most creative and imaginative and truthful voices to come out of the global war on terror. There are one or two other people I have in mind, but the documentary film, Combat Obscura, and then this book, kind of a companion piece in a way, explores things that we all felt about ourselves, that we knew about each other, but were unsaid until now. And so I want to start with you, young guy, joining the Marine Corps. You call yourself pretty much a dirtbag. You said you joined searching for something. You wanted to break out of the confines of human activity. You're hungry, so you eat. You're tired, so you sleep. You're depressed, so you take a pill. I wanted change, new discoveries. Did the Marine Corps transform you, Miles? Yeah, I, I, of course. You know, it. it uh, I, the thing is, I think there's a lot of weird kids. Like it, it's a it's a weird decision. Let's be honest. It's a weird decision to join the military in time of war when the war is not really clear as to what the objective is, what we're actually doing. Um, it's not as weird if you have family who is in the military, because then you're just following in those footsteps. But it was weird for a kid like me from New York, a uh, white kid from New York, you know, to uh, enlist in the Marines. Um, I think John probably has a different perspective because um, officers are more career-driven. Uh, it's more a sense of um, duty, a desire to, uh, you know, lead Marines. But I think for your average 18-year-old um, uh, dirtbag, as I was, you know, a lot of us had... <laughs> A lot of us had criminal records. A lot of us were drug waivers. Um, didn't have much chance getting into uh, a decent college, you know. And um, I was telling John uh, the other day, it, it's also an act of uh, self-punishment, you know. You want to be put through the grinder. You know, we watched we watch Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket's the number one recruiting movie 
for Marines, uh, you know, since that, since that commercial where he slays the dragon, I mean, full metal jacket is, is the movie that gets kids into the Marines. And if you, which is insane when you think about it, because, uh, there's suicide, there's, uh, you know, prostitution, there's, uh, you know, war crimes, the, you know, there's racism, there's all this, there's all this, um, I mean, it's very clearly an anti-war film and yet there's something about it that makes young, mostly disillusioned men, uh, decide to do that, decide to put themselves through that ringer. And um, I think at that point when I enlisted in 2008, it was mostly those, I think it was mostly those type of kids. Now, when 9-11 first happened, you had the, you know, you had kids that were actually, you know, felt that we were under attack and they were gung-ho and they wanted to, you know, take it out on the enemy, et cetera, whatever. But eight years in, it was a little different, especially since 9-11 was such a pretty distant memory for us, you know? Yeah, I totally think that's true, and I identify even as an officer, Miles. Even (laughs) as an officer. Even as a career-minded officer. uh, It is something weird to join uh, by the time 2008 or 2009 happened. You've kind of seen the movie. You know, you know pretty much how it ends. You may, you may, you know, say I believe something different. A lot of guys I was with were excited that Afghanistan was coming back into the fore, and they thought, well, yeah, this is the yeah. real thing. At least Iraq's gone. That was a mistake, but Afghanistan's where the real bad guys were. Did you guys have that sense too? Absolutely. I did not want to go to Iraq because I thought Iraq was um, not really a war anymore. It was more of like guys driving around in Humvees waiting to get blown up type of thing. Um, Afghanistan seemed, it was, Afghanistan was still seen as the good war. So there was a little less moral guilt about it. Um, but it was also, it was the, the things that we were hearing about Afghanistan that sounded very similar to Vietnam bunkers they they had the enemy had bunkers they had um snipers it wasn't it wasn't all it was foot patrols it wasn't just driving around waiting to get blown up which is not which is not really what you think of it as a typical war you know at least in in our in our collective imagination our collective understanding of of what combat is from you know various movies yeah and that's a question in your book too is like what is combat it's a it's a question you don't explicitly answer but it's there for the reader and i want to get into this book because uh i love the way you describe things uh it's very emotional it's memory based so there's emotion to what you are remembering how you are remembering and transmitting that memory onto the page and it particularly shows up in the places you go, the way you describe boot camp, the way you describe Afghanistan, the way you describe Camp Lejeune. It's different than what I have read before, what I have thought myself having been in those same places. So I want to start with boot camp. 
the civilians who work on the base throw a bunch of stuff at us that we load into the mesh laundry bags we have. I say thank you. They tell me to shut up, which hurts worse than a punch to the gut. The realization that even the civilians were told to treat us like dogs. Uh, what, <laughs> what are you getting at there? Yeah, man, that was a tough one because, you know, you, you got your drill instructors. You know that they're, they're, anim- they're basically demons. They, they sound like demons. Their voices are all shot to hell. So they, they, they scree- they're basically screeching at you constantly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then you, you go to the civilians and they're also fucking dicks. And so it's like, well, who's my friend then? Like who, you know, where, I'm no longer safe from anyone. And the worst, the worst, the worst civilians were the, uh, the barbers. So, you know, that, that opening scene in Full Metal Jacket where they're all getting their head shaved. Uh, in reality, our heads were bleeding because they were just jamming the fucking, uh, uh, you know, clippers, you know, cause there were so many, it was like, he, it was like, uh, shearing a line of sheep, you know, they were just, <laughs> so we were all coming out of there with, uh, bloody heads and hair all in our eyes and ears and, and down our neck. And, um, that, yeah, that was like, that's the realization that I was like, Oh fuck. Like nobody, like I'm a, I'm an, I'm just a number now. You know, I'm a nobody. I am. Like you start, and once you start to internalize that you are nothing, dirt, uh, nobody, um, you begin to develop uh, a kind of Stockholm syndrome for your own tormentors. You know, there's always the there's always the first two weeks where a bunch of a lot of recruits try to attempt to kill themselves. It's not necessarily not necessarily like intending to go through with it, but just to give the impression that they suicidal so that they could go home because it's that it's that first um, it's that first week that really uh, kind of makes people realize that this is not, uh, this is not, because it's not going to be an adventure. This is not going to be summer camp. This is going to be your, your, you're locked up. You're a prisoner, you know? It became clear quite early on that boot camp is not an adventure and it is not transcendent. It is bleak and tiresome and makes your worst traits materialize shamelessly. Yeah. I mean, the worst part about it was that we started out thinking it was us against the drill instructors, right? Like if we stuck together, um, we could kind of, you know, there was this really naive notion that we could uh, make it through it together. But no matter what you do in boot camp, you get punished for it. So even if you do something right, you still get fucked up. And so that just turns into uh, infighting. And basically, it was like um, there was a, a fight every other day, you know. And then 
you know, a kid would get his nose busted and, and then, the, the, you know, we'd have to hide it from the DIs. And if the DIs found out about it, then, you know, people would try to cover for him and, and it was just, but it was constant, um, bickering, uh, self-hatred. And in between those moments when the DIs would relieve some of the tension with say some, uh, kind of sexist or dark humor, those were the moments that kind of gave us hope. So that's why I say we started to, we, we hated each other in a lot of ways, but we were deeply in love with the drone instructors. Now, the point is to prepare you for combat, of course. Did you feel like boot camp prepared you for what you later experienced? I think, I think, the, I think the main thing boot camp does is it, be, because of all the mass punishment, because if one person fucks up, everybody gets punished. I think that it instills a a fear in you, a fear of letting the group down that is worse than death. So, if you're say to say you have to storm a you know a hill, which is like an old cliche, but if you have a a greater fear of not storming the hill and looking like a coward. Uh, to your to your fellow soldiers, and that fear overweighs the fear of death. Then boot camp has uh, has achieved its objective. And it also, I'd also say we talked about this, John, but the 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 gift of laughter, the kind of way that um, because we were so hazed, so humiliated, so uh, degraded physically and mentally we began to um, laugh about it. And when you're laughing at each other, being tortured and, and, and whatnot, and I can give you a list of, of some really heinous shit that, that went down. Yeah, you know, uh, the reason I ask about that, Miles, is because I'm thinking back to E.B. Sledge, his classic memoir of fighting in the Pacific War with the old breed. He said Peleliu was vindication of Marine Corps training. He said he, he attributed his ability to have withstood the stress of Peleliu to ROTC boot camp and infantry training. He goes on to list things that that hard training proved to him he could handle. Peleliu, the fighting, he could expect that the other Marines would be able to hold up their end of the deal and have his back. And he, he also learned that the critical factor in combat stress is the duration of combat rather than the severity. But you see things differently. Is that kind of what you're saying? No, I think there is a deal made between uh, the recruits. And I don't know where I cut off, but as I was saying, the mass punishment, if one person fucks up, the whole group gets punished. So there's a deal made where... Uh, the fear of letting down the group outweighs the fear of death in combat. That's definitely something we hear that people had much more anxiety about letting others down than they did about dying in combat. Uh, did you leave with that feeling? Did I leave uh, Afghanistan? Boot camp. Yes. No, yeah, That that's, like I said, that's the main, I think that's the main takeaway from boot camp. Aside from like, like I said, the laughter, the, the, the ability, 
because boot camp is funny, right? You start to laugh at uh, your own humiliation. You, you, when another guy gets fucked up or chewed out, you laugh about that. Some guy, uh, you know, shits himself. You laugh about that. You know, a drill instructor makes a recruit eat a photo of his own girlfriend. You laugh about that. Um, so you start to develop a, a sadistic kind of um, voyeuristic sense of humor that carries into the war where the people that you are supposed to kill, you can kill and still laugh about. So I don't, I don't think boot camp, I, I can't think of a single thing that boot camp tr- actually trained us for combat. The fitness was not that difficult. I, that, that wasn't, it wasn't as grueling as you would think. Uh, the rifle range, they pushed everyone through, even if they couldn't hit, hit a target to save their lives. They just pushed them through. Swim ball, half the guy, half the kids couldn't swim. Uh, they pushed them through. It was the, but it was the psychological um, kind of input or, you know, brainwashing, I think, that, that really was the main purpose. We had grown addicted to watching each other get humiliated. Yeah. We wrote of it. You know, but you're you're an observer naturally. You're a participant, but you're an observer too. Well, that comes through clearly in your work. Did you keep some distance, you know, from these sort of forces overtaking miles? Did I get distance from what? Sorry, I didn't hear you. Did you keep some distance? You you seem to to stay oh. a little bit apart or a little bit of back, you know, you watch others undergo things and you understand what's happening, but maybe not so much to well, yourself. Well, because I was private joker, you know, I was, you know, I was a cameraman. Private joker is, is, uh, you know, is just me, John Wayne. He never drinks, he never drinks the Kool-Aid fully. And, uh, and that's what pissed me off the most about a lot of kids in boot camp is that, after the crucible, I don't know you guys know what the, uh, if if anyone knows what the crucible is. It's like the last week, and you you know they don't feed you, and you go on a twelve mile hump, and you do all this, you crawl through barbed wire while they have giant stereos playing uh, uh, the sound of explosions and tanks and people screaming, and so you make it through that, and then they give you you know, your eagle, official eagle globe and anchor, your title, you're, you, you're now a Marine. And, uh, and all these kids were fucking just sobbing uncontrollably. They were so, they were so proud uh, of what they'd been through. And I guess just because I've always been a smart ass, I've always, I've always, I've never drunk the Kool-Aid. I've never been able to drink any Kool-Aid, no matter how tasty it is. Um, it just made me sick, you know? Because I thought, I thought they, you realize you're, you, you know, you just put you through hell and you're now, you're like a dog that's like asking for more. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. Like, 
I don't know. I've, I've just always been, and part of that is being a cameraman because my job was to be an observer, like you said. So I already had that distance, you know? Um, but yeah, I guess it's just not in my nature to, uh, whenever I see fe- like uh, people get fully, fully brainwashed or invested in something, um, I get very skeptical. And so you finish boot camp and you go on to your military occupational specialty training. You become a combat camera marine. Fort Meade, Maryland, home of the NSA, Edward Snowden. From there, you go down to Camp Lejeune. This was this is the base with uh, that is the home of uh, the NSA and uh, the Burger King on base got robbed twice while I was there. So I don't know. I, I don't know what that says about like, you know, military security, but yeah, I mean, it was probably some army dudes that were living on the base, you know, you said you've always been a skeptic. My also sounds like you're a skeptic of base security in on some bases too. Um, from, from Fort Meade, you travel down the Eastern seaboard to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Uh, no, first I went to Japan. Okay. Sorry. You, you go to Japan and that's a, a very interesting. In Okinawa, Japan, it's just one, uh, it's just one international incident after another. A Marine would bring a 13 year old girl. The base would get locked down. A fucking drunken sailor would drive a tank off the base, crash into the seawall, basically get locked down. Uh, drugs were rampant because um, that was when the start of uh, Spice, that's when Spice started, the artificial marijuana, which wouldn't show up in a urinalysis. And so uh, it wasn't, Okinawa wasn't a place where a lot of Marines deployed from to Afghanistan. That was more first Mardiv in Pouncing and then second Mardiv. But Okinawa was more about um, conducting training exercises with uh, the, the Filipinos and uh, the Thai army and uh, humanitarian stuff. You know, I would film the combat engineers building schools in Bangladesh Stuff like that. You've said that that also one of your jobs while you were there was was cataloging material in the uh, DVIDs in the Defense Visual Information System. And were you at that time starting to realize the disparity between what at least some cameramen were capturing and what was actually being utilized by AFN or, or the rest of the system? Oh, absolutely. I had we had um, trash bags full of footage from Fallujah you know, dead Marines being dragged out of the crazy thing about Fallujah was it was, it was so compact the way it looked, you know, these guys were just shooting out of windows. It was all a mess. It was just screaming, shouting, everything, everything was confused. And then, and then there'd be a cut and you'd see a blood trail, just a Marine being dragged out and uh, guys shooting up mosques, which was technically against uh, the rules of engagement. Um, 
but some of the the most powerful, darkest imagery I'd seen. And uh, we were just putting it in trash bags and then storing it in a warehouse, you know, in Japan. And it was like, this isn't going to see the light of day, not because the military doesn't want you to see it, although they may not, but it's not going to see the light of day because no one would know how to look for it because every, every video, every, everything that we shot would have um, like a uh, serial number on it. So if you submit a FOIA request for this stuff and you don't know the serial number, it's gone. It's, it, this, it's, it, all that stuff is gone. I mean, what sort of an effect was that having on you, seeing that kind of footage and watching it? Were you already thinking about some way to capture that, to, to, to release that into the world? Yeah. I mean, that, that had a huge part of my reason for keeping my foot. Like, I, I, I could not understand why a combat camera film some of the most historically important uh, Im- um, you know, combat footage, and then just hand it over to uh, their superiors and kind of forget about it. Didn't make any sense to me. I think some of them wanted to forget about it, but um, as soon as I got downrange, I I I knew that. Uh, we had a totally different access to like a civilian journalist, you know, um, even someone as great, you know, even a journalist as great as Tim Hetherington or Sebastian Younger, there are, there's this great scene. You, you've all seen her Strepo. Yes. The, the great documentary film by, by Tim Hetherington and Sebastian great, Younger great film. with the Korgal Valley. But there's a scene where there's a guy on post and he's talking to another guy on the radio. And the camera's on the guy on post. The guy on the radio doesn't know that he's being filmed. And uh, the guy being filmed says something to the effect of like, uh, yeah, hearts and minds. And then the guy on the radio goes, first we'll take their hearts, then we'll, then we'll take their minds. You know, And that's something that wouldn't have been captured uh, by a civilian journalist had he not known he was being recorded, you know, but as a Marine, as a Marine cameraman, I could, I could, um, I could film them saying whatever the fuck they wanted because I was one of them. Sure. Some of them, some of them were like, you know, get the fuck away from me. And that happened several times. But for the most part, it was, uh, I was their home movie catalog, you know, did they welcome you though, or did they kind of keep you at arm's length? The infantry. Um, some platoons did, some platoons didn't. It was the more, it was the more uh, belligerent platoons that, that you know they they were getting out in a few months, and uh, they were the most welcoming. And sometimes they were too welcoming, like they wouldn't, you know, they didn't want me to leave, but like. I'd be like, there's nothing happening here. I'm just filming you guys smoking hash and, and fucking uh, lifting weights. And uh, so I'd have to move on. And then there were guys that 
basically thought they were living in their own movie, I think. And so me filming them just um, pushed them even further to go looking for action. And those yeah, you've talked about this before in some other places about the kind of the performative nature of of some of the violence that happens when the camera is around. Let me read a quote. Let me read a quote to lead into Miles' comment. There's a quote from the book, uh, and I heard it spoken once by an officer. Quote: "Be calm, collected, and always stand straight." The instructor had said to the officers in training. Then, just before you begin your order, I want you to turn and imagine a camera right there off to the side recording everything you are about to say. I don't know. You tell me. That's, the off- that's what officers told each other. <laughs> all, all we were told was to, to keep our mouths shut, you know? But you guys, you found some people who liked performing, uh, I'm guessing. Yeah, of course. But I think the officer's performance was different from the enlisted performance. How so? The enlisted performance was, uh, let's go um, heat up an MRE bag and let it explode in a kid's hand. The performative aspect for officers was to uh, play some kind of uh, version of general Patton or like not even like uh captain sparks right he was the he was the he was kind of the ideal the idolized officer right but no your thing you guys' thing was giving speeches that 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 was that was the thing you know you're going into a fight um you know, just mentally preparing. It it was just, it was all, it was performative in different ways. You know, isn't this just like everything probably goes back, 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 back in time, back to the Greeks. The Greek word is kleos. It means glory and glory loosely means what people say about you, especially what people say about you once you're dead. Uh, but I suppose for officers performing leadership, they wanted to make sure that certain things were said about them. Or they hoped certain things were said about their leadership. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You could speak to that better than I can. I, I just know that we all hated off we hated pretty much every officer. Um we also hated, you know, the 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 master sergeants, and and you know, we hated Harrington, and we hated uh, Gunny, whatever his face was, and, you know, because you're being treated, uh, you know, you're being fed shit and kept in the dark. You, you know, you're just you're. We didn't we didn't even know where we were going before we went there. Because the officers and the intel people would be like, need to know basis. It's a need to know basis. Like, really? I don't need to know what, what part of the fucking country I'm going to. 
I don't need to know what language they speak, what tribe they belong to, what, you know, what, what kind of culture do they have? What, what's the history of that area and what, what's been happening with other troops in that area? Not, not a goddamn thing. They wouldn't say anything to us. And uh, that, that's just going to build resentment. But the speeches, you know, the speeches were just, um, uh, fluff, you know, it was just, it was, uh, like a pep talk before, you know, football game. That's kind of what it felt like. I want to talk about Afghanistan and how you describe it. Um, in one passage, you talk about Afghanistan setting you free, setting you free from the stress of figuring out what we would do with the rest of our lives because survival was the most immediate concern. Set us free from the internet, from our parents and girlfriends, from all the rest that we had to endure, all the trivial things you had to endure during garrison kind of go out the window in Afghanistan. Did you feel like a relief of stress when you were there? doesn't sound like it. That's the, that's the kind of... Uh paradox right like war is hell but at the same time it's kind of a vacation because you're 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 with your boys you're uh you you don't have to you know hygiene goes out the window rules you know uh a lot a lot of you know a lot of things that you would would not be socially acceptable obviously in normal civilization you can do. And on top of that, there was, uh, drugs everywhere. The hat, the hashish was everywhere. And there was no, there was no way to urinalysis, you know, do a urinalysis when we're living in a mud hut, um, in the middle of nowhere. Um, but we didn't have to blast our boots. So you, you put that many restrictions on Marines in terms of their appearance, right? shaving, uh, getting a haircut every weekend, uh, wearing the right colored socks, blossom your boots, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's like that line from generation kill. You just, you, you're, you're poking a dog in the cage. And then when you let it loose, even though they're, even though you're in battle, you're in a war zone, it's, it's liberating. And, uh, I don't, I don't know how else to, it, it, it's hard to explain to, you know, out, outsiders, but there's a, there, it is, there's a big part of it that just feels like, um, a break, <laughs> like you're taking a break because Garrison is so fucking awful. I mean, let's be honest. Garrison is just waking up at five in the morning, you know, every morning doing PT, reporting at some place, waiting in line, going to the armory, uh, and then getting drunk as shit at night and then repeat. And uh, I think, and then also after dealing with uh, all the stressors of, you know, your family and everything. Like I was saying, like getting off the internet, even that, you know, but it is, it is quite 
contradictory. And it's it's hard to write about in a coherent way, I think. But um, it's the same way that prisoners miss prison, you know? I want to switch focus a little bit away from the Marines while you're in country to the rest of the country, Afghanistan and the people. And you've said you didn't feel like you were properly schooled up in what you would encounter. I think many people share that opinion. There wasn't enough focus ahead of time and even in theater on the people, their dynamics, their history, their language. But there's a good passage you have where you're sort of putting your finger on the mystery of Afghanistan. I'll read it. And, you know, shout out to Jocko too. I know Jocko will have a guy on and just sort of like read that whole book. I'm not going to read your whole book. He's very dangerous. He's a dangerous man with a book in his hands, but there are a few passages. <laughs> There's a few package passages I want to read. I'd love to, I'd love to go on Jocko and just spar with him. You should uh, be careful though. He might read your whole book. Second. Okay. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> The area surrounding their house was strange and barren, beautiful, no doubt, with the river just to skip away and large cliffs jutting up in the distance. But as far as living went, it seemed like an unfinished idea. There weren't any crops nearby, except for a dying marijuana field. And out by the cliffs, there were some yogi milling around, Afghan gypsies who rode on horses and lived in large tents. Like so many parts of the country, it made you wonder what was really going on, if there was a secret underneath, other than what we just assumed, which was that they were all working for the Taliban. What were you trying to say in that passage? Well, I think it goes into uh, the whole mystification that we applied to um, the country before we got there. You know, you build up, you almost build it up like, um, it's part of the, de- you know, dehumanization of of the people that you're, you're about to go kill, right? But... Afghanistan was certain has certainly is a is a has, is has, is a century old um, mystery and constantly in flux and um, yeah it always just it none of it made any fucking sense to us like. That some of the shit they did just didn't, we didn't understand because we don't live like that, you know? And so in our heads, we mystified it. And uh, in a sense, we mystified it so that we were able to uh, dehumanize them at the same time. But I, I don't want to fall into that trope of like the noble savage, you know, but some of the people were happier than most Americans are these days, you know? I mean, imagine just living, imagine just being out there, you know, in, 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 in the desert, in the mountains, where the moon is brighter than sometimes brighter than the sun. Like you can't, you can see better without night vision. 
and they're just always there always just seemed to be something under the surface that we were not um, capable of seeing. And instead we would just, you know, we would say, uh, uh, those guys are bad guys. You know, those guys are bad based on what, like based on your complete lack of understanding of what a bad guy is. Like you, you take out a low level, um, 15 year old whose family was blown up in a drone strike and the Taliban's not paying him to take pot shots at us or to spot for us. And you kill that guy. Well, you just turn, you just, uh, you know, you just radicalize his cousin, right? Who's going to, who's going to fight against the Americans. And so, yes, it was a beautiful country, but it was mostly, I think mostly beautiful because we didn't understand it. And when you don't understand something completely, it has a mystique to it. And I'll, I, you know, I, I get smells. If I smell a, um, something burning and it brings back the smell of a burn pit or, you know, um, Afghan moon dust, you know, it'll trigger, it'll just send me right back there, you know, and I'll, and I'll feel that, that kind of giddy, that sort of mystique all over again. Um, yeah. But it was confusing as to how they were living. But they were all, you know, bone thin. I, you know, it's, it, it's worse now because all the money that we were putting into Afghanistan was going to the Taliban, right? The Kajaki Dam that we were supposed to fix, uh, all the all the government money that we were giving to the government of Afghanistan, which was totally corrupt, uh, would then get funneled back to the Taliban so that the Taliban wouldn't blow up the dam while we were trying to fix the dam that we had blown up back in uh, 2011 or 2001, you know, right after 9-11, that the Russians had blown up in the 80s. And so it's like that bridge in uh, apocalypse now we blow it up every night and they build it back the next day it's a it's a perfect metaphor for the whole war what was the perception of regular marines on the ground the infantry guys you were the combat combat camera guy you were watching all this you had a different perspective perhaps because you got some standoff distance as the observer to think about some of this notice some of these patterns but what do you think their minds the uh, guys in the margin was fuck this. Get me the fuck out of here. I want to get out. Um, I want to buy a motorcycle and uh, drive across the country. The new the boots, the new joints were. I want to impress the guys that want to get the fuck out, and I want to get. Um, I want to get a confirmed kill. I want to do my job. Make sure sure as shit. Make sure I don't fuck up because marine grunts will. Uh, fuck you up. If you if you screw up in the field, you you will get. Um, I know a kid who's uh, they broke his ribs uh, because he 
and he fell asleep on post or something. He got sent to, you know, headquarters battalion. Um, so for the new joins, it was, you know, not fuck up. Try my best to get a confirmed kill. And for the guys who had been in and were getting out, it was, um, this is stupid and the Taliban's going to come back as soon as we leave. And we knew that back in 2011. Those guys had been idealistic about the thing, but they'd lost it by that point. Is that what you're saying? What? Those senior guys had been idealistic or maybe true believers in the mission years prior. To 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 Lifers were just trying to get their pension. That's all. I don't think they believed in the mission any more than your average Lance Corporal, but they'd been on so many pumps and uh, a lot of them hadn't seen a lot of action, you know, because if you're higher up, you're, you know, you're calling the shots from the, you know, from the fob and you're not really going out on foot patrols, interacting with the people. Um, so no, I think that the, the big part was for them was getting promoted and and uh, getting their pension after 20 years. Did anyone believe in the mission from your perspective? Like I said, those were the scary ones. <laughs> those were the ones you had to watch out for because they would go, they would go, cha- they would go, uh, what we call Taliban chasing, and you can't ta- you can't chase a ghost. You can't chase someone who looks like everyone else and who has egress routes uh, that we have no idea about, you know? Um, The only guy I knew who saw somebody shooting at us got shot in the head. So the true believers, uh, and I write about one of them in the book, those were the ones that you had to be careful about. And, and like, those guys were the most enthusiastic uh, about being on camera, you know, because they were, like I said, they were playing some kind of movie in their head where they were the star. And, um, and maybe on some kind of uh, religious sense, they believed that, killing Muslims was, was the right thing, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can speak to that more about like, cause if, if dude, I was, I was with, the, you know, I was with the Lance Cooleys. I wasn't with, I wasn't, I, did the officers believe in it? From what I experienced, there were many who did, especially, especially young, young people, young officers, uh, junior enlisted. From what I could see, sergeants, many, uh, some who who were not. You say lifers or career guys. You know, it still means twenty years to me. Many sergeants, staff sergeants, are ten years or under. So, okay, they but, still but, have they, 10 did years. They, but did they actually believe in what we were doing, or were they just? Were they just focused on saving their buddies' lives? Discerning intent is always difficult to do, so um, we'd have to ask them. But I saw 
among some, maybe many, a belief in the mission. And perhaps they were disillusioned at some point. Well, the mission was to defeat the Taliban and install the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. That was the mission, two parts in broad scale. So to, so to enforce a government, a democracy in, in, a, in outside of the main two cities, like Kabul and Herat, to install a government in a place where the people don't even identify as Afghans, in a place where the only, the only law and order is the Taliban, yeah, certainly it was a challenging mission, uh, but these are the type of people who I think uh, believe in lofty ambitions. And so training the Afghan National Security Force, Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, building up a local defense force. Uh, Marines and soldiers did risk their lives to do these things. And I think so they believed in it. You were confident in the Afghan army? Confident in it? No, confident in our ability to train them to the best of our cap- capability, yes. Whether that mission was complete, I think realize, I would agree with you, it wasn't. You do realize, well, I mean, I know you realize, the only reason we didn't get slaughtered by the Taliban was because of our air support. That was that the only other things, yes. No, that was it. That was it. They were they they were better. Uh, they were better guerrilla fighters. Um, tactically, I think they knew what they were doing better than us. But anytime something popped off, we'd call in a, a gun run, or if we were lucky, you know, some missiles or some uh, some some airstrikes. And that would end it, and they would they would run away. You take away the air support, buddy. You're going to be in a. You're looking at exactly what happened to the Afghan army after we left because they had no air support. I don't think I don't think any kind of any of the training that Marines went through would uh, would put would put them up against the Taliban, uh, and 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 uh, succeed without air support. It was an unfair fight and we still lost. I disagree drawing a direct parallel between the capacity of the Afghan National Army and say the Marine Corps or the Army. I don't think that sans air support, the Marine Corps basically falls apart like the Afghan National Army did with post-withdrawal. Without air support? I don't think it all hinges on air support, Miles. Huh? I don't think it all hinges on air support. I think a large part of it does drones, uh, surveillance blimps, um, medevac, medevac helicopters. Uh, what what are you, you going to do with a wounded marine without a, without a without a without a chopper? What are you going to do? You drive, you're going to drive him back all the way to Bagram. He's going to die by the time he gets there. Yeah, it's a good counterfactual. I disagree, but you finish the Afghan deployment. And you go back to Camp Lejeune. And again, there's a really interesting description of Jay Vegas, you call it, this place you live, Jacksonville, North Carolina. It was a hologram town, a gross, incestuous place 
where the strip clubs looked like Walgreens with no windows, built temporarily with another place in mind, and where the dancers were mostly casualties of failed military marriages. Women who were left in Jacksonville with no money and nowhere else to go, hell-bent on hustling the men who had hustled them. Is that true? Or is that just fun, interesting, creative? Did you ever go to a strip club in J Vegas? You never went once. See, this this is the problem with officers. This is what I'm talking about. You, <laughs> you, 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 you sit. He says to me, I was shocked by, uh, by the drug use of, of the illicit because we both live in different worlds, right? There was, in the, the Marine Corps has the biggest class divide between the officers and the illicit. The Army is a little less so. Um, the strippers were celebrities. They were the only women in Jackson. Never spent time on ship, but, I, but continue. Yeah. Um, there was no women. You know, 10%, I think less than 10% of the Marine Corps are women Marines. So all we have were the strip clubs, and you had guys um, spending their, their whole paycheck, you know, every weekend, thinking that uh, they were in love with these women. And, uh, you know, the every some of the strippers worked on the fucking base. Like, they worked at the PX. I remember there was one who worked at a, a pizza place on base. And at night, she stripped. But they all had a, a, a what do you call it? A, cat, a, big, a harem of, uh, of men, of Marines, who were, were desperately in love with them. And would spend their whole paycheck, you know, just to, uh, just so that they wouldn't go dance, give someone else a laugh dance or whatever, or in the off chance that they might, you know, go home with you. But yeah, Jay Vegas is, uh, I kind of want to go back there, like just to see what it's like now, you know? It was it was such a it was such a hellhole. I mean, it was literally strip clubs, tattoo parlors, pretty much every chain restaurant you could think of. Um, a real awful place, much worse than uh, Vietnam, Fayetteville, I think. So when we got back, the main thing was to. Go somewhere where people didn't hate us. Because every, around every like military base, most of the locals don't like the military. They don't like the soldiers. They don't like the Marines or sailors. Because it's because we're fucking stupid. And you know, we're we're like a fraternity on crap. Right, but with guns and PGSD to boot. So, yeah, I mean, what more? Like, what do you what do you want to know about Jay Vegas? It's interesting you frame it like this because another way to look at J 
Jacksonville is it's just a, a melting pot type of town. It contains all the different weird pieces that are in America, typically in different parts of America. The military base, the Marine Corps in this instance, just happens to bring them all roughly stitched together. There are sushi restaurants, there are Turkish restaurants, Afghan restaurants, there's hunting, there's beach life, uh, there's every type of religious experience and ethnicity, and it's all crammed together in this one weird place. Miles, are you fascinated by the darkest corners of the room? Is are that you, what inspires well, you? This, are you? Are you a, uh, a tourist guide for, for Jacksonville? North? Are you promoting Jacksonville, North Carolina as a, as a uh, tourist destination? I'm promoting it or, to be seen in the clearest possible way. My whole experience, yes, there, are, there were sushi restaurants. Yes, there were um, beaches, but the, the nice beaches were like in Wrightsville and, and Wilmington and all those places. But the, the main experience of, of the average Marine in Jacksonville was getting drunk, um, going to a strip club, getting thrown out, um, buying coke in uh, trailer parks because the, ch- the the women who worked at the chow hall, at the mess hall, were all dealing drugs to, to the Marines. And so uh, sushi to boot, I still think <laughs> I still think we're talking about a town that is um, that is basically a parasite town that lives off of the base, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd love to. I, I would love to go back just because of how awful it was, just like how grimy it was. Like, I'd love to go back. Well, Miles, when you're ready, just call me and I'll set up a tour of Jacksonville. (laughs) We'll taste the cuisine. Sponsored by the (laughs) North Carolina Tourism Board. I've been back. The place place fascinates me. The place fascinates me. So many parts uh, that should belong together are there. It's an artistic place in that way. Things that shouldn't be together are together. And it somehow works in that one place. No, it is certainly it is unlike any other place I've been. You know, you you at, you asked, oh, are you just um, muckraking, right? Am I just am I just talking about the the bad aspects of the military? And I think if you have an unjustified war that lasted 20 years and cost hundreds and millions of lives, civilians, soldiers alike, two, three, uh, $3 trillion of taxpayer money. Um, it just feels a bit, um, it just feels a bit disingenuous to, to try to kind of sneak in some, um, some positive aspects to that. And I, I, look, I'm not looking at it as black and white. I, I, I talk about it. I talk about in the book that yes, the military does give you uh, a sense of belonging, a sense of camaraderie, um, certainly gives you discipline. 
But uh, we're talking about uh, a 20 year unjustified war. And if this and if we as a country are going to go to war. We better have a damn good reason. And there there was no there was no coherent understanding of what we were doing and what the mission was and what was going to be accomplished other than getting a lot of people rich as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, if you, if you want to, if you want to read, um, what's his name? What did you, I wrote the review of his book. Yeah. If you want to go read Stu Scheller's book about how, great a marine he was and you know how much he whatever like that that's fine but my experience in the marines as as a you know as a as a low-level guy uh had had fun moments but at the cost of other people right it was always at the cost of other people and it has, it has fucked me up for life. I've had to live with that guilt for my whole life since I've been out. It's fucked up my relationships with women. It's fucked up my relationships with uh, drugs and alcohol. Um, so I don't know. You know, I don't know what else to to say, but what the truth is, you know? Well, talk about, I'm, I feel like, you know, you watch the movie come Obscura is devoid of narration or interpretation. You're, there's very little context. You know, you're, you, you literally, at least the way that I took it was exactly what you're describing is that, is that the infantryman was given very little information about why they were doing what they were doing or where they were or, or what the mission was. And you, perceive the events of the of of the film that way and the book feels to me like your internal monologue your attempts to process that experience and process coming home and your relationship to the behavior in the military and your 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 experiences there talk about you know just i mean your own mental health you know after coming back and and up to today how you are processing i mean you talk about ideas about masculinity and and uh, what that atmosphere was like and how that environment brought out some of the the you know to use whatever today's parlance kind of toxic behavior but but how are you processing that today and integrating those those experiences into yourself as an a, a person who is no longer a, a dumb 18 year 18 year old is is trying to figure out what was, what did it all mean? Well, you know, once you get your, your brain back from the government, it takes, it, it does take a few years. Um, I was still telling people I'd just gotten out of the Marines five years after I'd been out, you know, I'd say, Oh, Hey, we just got out of the Marines. Like when, uh, 2013. Okay. So, you know, it's hard to let go of that. And um, when you've been institutionalized, it sticks with you. Even if you're, that's the beauty of the film, Full Metal Jacket, is that Private Joker is 
a joker. He's a smart ass. He's detached from the system. He doesn't drink the Kool-Aid. By the end of the film, he has this robotic kind of narration, you know, tone of voice. And even though he mercy killed uh, a female sniper, he's still he's still now part of the system. He has become essentially animal mother who is private pile, you know, who is uh, the rest of them, right? He's become a killer. And, uh, and you don't, you don't make it out. Even as a cameraman, you don't make it out without, uh, that being permanently stamped into your soul. So, PTSD aside, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Everybody claims PTSD these days. Trauma, you know, trauma has a currency, you know, especially for young men. Um, so it's hard sometimes to tell whether I'm playing the part of the disabled veteran or if I actually am, you know, the disabled veteran. Um, but um, it first came out as anger. I mean, that, 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 that was just the main thing when I, when I first came back. It was just, uh, ang- I was just angry if someone did something, you know, if, uh, you know, road rage, that type of shit. Um, but then I was pretty good while I was in college. And then it was kind of COVID reinvigorated. You, you went to Columbia after the war, after, after you separated from service. Yeah. But uh, COVID re-triggered re- a lot of things, I think, for a lot of veterans. Because of the isolation? or Yeah. Yeah. It was, the, it was the isolation. It was the day drinking. Uh, it was not having any purpose. Um, and granted, this is when I was writing the book, but, but, um, yeah, it, 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 it brought back a lot of things. And, um, and then of course the pullout just, you know, the pullout just sort of revealed what we had all, we had already known, but like in a much quicker scale. Like I just, I couldn't believe, I, I did not expect it to happen to that quickly that, you know, the Afghan army would just surrender. I think you're in good company. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, mental health, it's always going to be, it's always going to be there. Then, you know, that's why I say in the, in the book, you know, the, the flight or flight response is there when I, and you know what the, you know what the fucking, uh, craziest thing about living in america is every motherfucker has a gun so if i go to walmart i gotta worry about some nutso going in there and uh and shooting up the place and then i'm thinking okay what am i gonna do am i gonna bum rush him am i gonna try to you know you go through all these like tactical ideas you know that, that 
probably wouldn't even work, you know, in, in, in the end run. But, um, but yeah, it's always there. It's always the anger is what is what sort of makes you feel safe. Because if you if you can get angry enough and see red, maybe you can take him out. But like my my wife, um, we go to Ireland. Nobody has guns. You walk down the street, you feel safe. It, it, there's a, there's a weight off your shoulders, you know, when you go to these other countries, and uh, it's not there when you're when you're here. We recently had an interview with Peter Fever, who did, just did a book called "Thanks for Your Service." Uh, he's a social scientist talking about trust in the military and and what I hear from you, I think, is something we've heard from a lot of uh, veterans on the podcast is feeling profoundly uncomfortable when civilians say things like, thanks for your service. And one of the things that Fever talks about is is pedestalizing, the danger of pedestalizing, uh, in in his words, uh, veterans for, for their service. Um, talk about how you react when people say something like that. And I, I'm, I'm connecting that in a, in part to the thread in your book about, uh, January 6th and the presence of veterans in the, in the crowd in January 6th. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think it's that it's putting them on a pedestal, but it's also being on the civilians part, being unwilling to um, accept responsibility, right? We'll just thank you for your service. I don't have to think about the fact that my tax money funded the war. I don't have to think about the complicated questions of um, support, saying you support the troops. Okay, well, do you support what the troops are doing? Do you support the war? No. Okay. So then why do you support the troops? Why do you support the troops if they're doing something that you don't believe in? And those are the uncomfortable questions that they don't want to talk about because there's been such a, because of movies like Rambo and, um, the, the homeless situation with Vietnam vets and Iraq vets. Nobody wants to um, offend us. Nobody wants to, to trigger us. They're scared. They're, at the end of the day, they're scared. They're just, they're just scared, right? And um, we need to break that down. We need to have some kind of um, honest sort of discussion or ability to discuss with each other what we really did, you know, you know, that some of us were naive and joined because we believed in what we were doing. And some of us did not, you know, and that needs to be, it can't just be like, on the left, it's we're we're villains, right? We're psychopaths. Combat watching combat obscura just you know propels that that notion. On the right, it's we're heroes doing God's work, and in the middle, 
it's this idea that war is hell and uh, the troops should not be held accountable for anything that they do because war is hell. But sometimes war is not hell. Sometimes war is a bunch of misguided kids thinking they know who uh, the enemy is when they don't. And, uh, and, it's, and it's a built-in desire. It's a built-in thing that boot camp trains you to do, which is to shoot first and ask questions later. Perfect example in the movie of the dead civilian that, that uh, the snipers took out. So we hear six shots go off, right? And it's close by. So we go, we're running over there. And this, this uh, Afghan dude is crawling uh, under a hut because he's dying. Um, snipers come off the hill. And they, uh, and they say, um, we're searching his body. He's got no weapon. He's got no radio. Um, snipers are saying... Well, uh, he, he, uh, he was acting in a military manner and, uh, he was running around barefoot and also he was like using kids as a shield. So then the guy's uncle comes over and says, no, he, he's, uh, he's mentally handicapped and he was just playing with those kids. And in the movie, you don't see that context. All you see is the fact that there's this dead guy who doesn't have a radio, doesn't have a weapon, but it's very clear. I mean, the Marines are saying, let's hide the body. This doesn't look good. It's very clear that what they did was, was the wrong thing. Sniper calls me up maybe uh, when the movie came out, 2019, so seven years after the incident happened. And he says, you know, the, the guys that shot him still think that that was a bad guy. Like, they know, they know in their hearts that that guy was working for the Taliban. And so they're unwilling to accept their own responsibility. They can't, you know, and that's a hard thing to do, mind you. But think about how much harder it is for his family, the, the guy who was killed, his family who has no idea why the guy was killed. And to, for, for there to be a honest, to bridge the military civilian gap so that there aren't these continuous uh, meaningless wars, we both need to be honest. The veterans need to be honest about what they did and not, not get too bent out of shape about it. And civilians need to acknowledge that uh, we're not heroes. We we did a we did a lot of uh, shady shit uh, for a cause that was not clear. Um, but at the same time, we weren't naive about it. At least I wasn't. And so it's, uh, it, it's, it has to be on both, both ends. You know, veterans have to be honest and civilians have to be honest.
when we talk about these, you know, when we talk about the longest war in American history that ended in 10 minutes once we pulled out. I guess I'll take it back to the beginning as we close this discussion and John's question about 9-11, what it was like to experience it, Miles' point about the feeling of togetherness, particularly in New York, where, Miles, you came of age in part. I know you lived other places too. But I think that togetherness feeling did affect a lot of us, even people like me in Nebraska, pretty far away from uh, Manhattan. And that feeling of togetherness, there was also a feeling of fear and anxiety about what would happen next. There was a feeling in our families, in our communities about wanting defenders of our household, our neighborhood, our country, our way of life. And that feeling spurred a lot of people to action, to join the service, to want to do righteous things on behalf of the country and the people we cared about and loved. And revenge. Don't forget revenge. It's a part of, it's a part of being human. It goes back again to the Greeks, surely before. But to say in retrospect that we were mistaken isn't wrong. I think there was a mistake. And, you know, I, I'm not a, arguing for domestic criminal law to be applied in the context of war, but there's a, there's a theory, it's called the mistake of fact defense in criminal law, that when you honestly and reasonably believed something, it negates uh, the intent that would be required to be convicted of the crime. So your sort of argument is that we did bad things. People did wrong things in Afghanistan, knowing what we know now. And I don't disagree with you. But I don't believe that people intended to do wrong things. I think people honestly and reasonably, many, most, all, maybe, joined up, signed the paperwork, said yes to become Marines, said yes to become infantrymen, said yes to go to deployment, said yes over and over and over again, thinking honestly and reasonably that we were under threat, that they needed to defend, that they needed to do the right thing, follow the mission. And so I see it with more nuance, perhaps. Uh, no, I see, I, I see the nuance. I just think that your, your idea of uh, this, the main reason being uh, patriotism and wanting to protect our country as the main reason for high school kids joining the military. Uh, I think the real, the main underlying issue, or not issue, but the main underlying reason is that they want to become men. They feel untested. They want to prove themselves. And um, it's, it's not, it's, no one goes to war with the idea of sacrificing themselves. We all go to, we all join the military thinking, I'll, I'll make it. I'll make it through. And... I'll get my man card punched on the way. I'll get to experience something that no one else has experienced. You can't tell me unless you're some, unless you're, uh, um, you know, some kind of robot that the main reason is to protect the homeland. It always, always, always has bigger underlying issues, whether it's your dad who's in Vietnam and you want to prove to him that you're a man just as much as him, or you, you grew up in the suburbs and you, uh, you want to get, 
you want to get the shit beat out of you and get tested. Uh, those reasons outweigh the the patriotism stuff. In my opinion, hand over foot. Like I said, after immediately after 9-11, I would agree with you. Yeah, a lot of guys were joining because we felt we were uh, under attack. When you enlisted, when did you or when you went to when did you be uh, commissioned? Two thousand nine. Okay. So by then we already knew that it wasn't uh, Afghanistan had nothing to do with with nine eleven. So that it doesn't even make sense. We did talk about the the eagerness of fighting the real war in Afghanistan, and. Perhaps yeah. we're getting into a psychological discussion about our ability to delude ourselves into thinking we're doing the right thing. I don't know. I think mental states are incredibly complex and motives even more so the reason for doing something. You, you, look, at, you look at a country like Ukraine who's, who is being invaded and I'll say, hell yes. The reason they're fighting is, defend, is to defend their homeland. But American boys going overseas to kill people on a in a place they can't point out on the map, that's a totally different thing. And uh, in many respects, the Taliban had more of a right to uh, fight back against us than we did to fight them. Because we were the, we were the invaders, we're the occupiers. We're not, you know, this isn't uh, uh, 12 guys flew a plane in, into a building Um it doesn't justify invading uh, a whole country. You know what I mean? I do. I hear you. And I think it's, it's not wrong. I'm not saying I totally disagree with you. It's just so varied in this area. You sure, talked many times varied. about the different ways that enlisted people would speak to each other versus officers. And no question there is a code switching that happens when we do it every, every day. We, speak differently to different audiences and those audiences were very distinct. I think if I were to ask them, why are you doing this? And they said one thing to me and then you separately in the barracks were to say, hey man, what are you doing this for? And they say this and it's different things. And the truth is probably both. It might not even be between. I mean, we, we do all contain the multitudes. I think both things can be true at once. Sure, sure. To, to, to know for sure is impossible. But Miles, this has been a very interesting discussion. And your work is even more interesting. The book is called Whistles from the Graveyard, My Time Behind the Camera on War, Rage, and Restless Youth in Afghanistan. We'll give you the last word telling the audience why this book is important for them to read. Well, I would just like to uh, plug a fantastic book called River City One <laughs> by John Waters. Uh, not not the filmmaker John Waters, but uh, yeah, John is it is it available for pre order yet on Amazon? Should we? <laughs> yeah, it's right. It's right next to Whistles from the Graveyard. Right, the right next to well, um, top sales. Yeah, we're like, going to talk to Amazon and uh, put them have them put it together in a uh, in a, in a two book pack. Um, trying to keep my sales. <laughs> there's yeah there's two books for folks to read on november 7th that's right that's right all right thank you guys yeah miles thank you so much for for talking to us on hot wash yeah 
I, uh, anytime you want to do it again, I'd be happy. Okay. We'll take you up on that. Absolutely. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.